Our topic today is pediatric enuresis. My guest is Dr. Judith Van Sickle. Dr. Van Sickle is a pediatric nephrologist and assistant professor of pediatrics. Dr. Van Sickle, welcome to the show. Good morning. Thank you for having me. And before we would start, I wanted to really say that I'm very honored to talk about that simple case uh, and a very frequent primary pediatric problem because it could be such an important factor for the parents, for the child, right. and also for the health care provider if we are looking for a, a chronic problem related to something unusual. Right. I think that, you know, and, and uh, Dr. Van Sickle and I discussed a little bit about where we kind of want to go with this conversation. But let's start first just, um, you know, a nice definition of what really is enuresis. How common is it? And, and Dr. Van Sickle, what's considered normal and what's considered not normal? Yes, excellent. So uh, many times when we see patients uh, refer to our bedwetting clinic, which again, we see bedwetters. So I am a primary end-stage uh, transplant doctor, but I also see bedwetting. Uh, so I do have my own enuresis clinic. Uh, in some time, we basically see that there's just a misinterpretation of normal behavior. So number one, voiding, right? It means that the patients, uh, we are emptying our bladder during urination. Incontinence or enuresis is kind of like interchangeable. Basically means that the person uh, involuntarily either discharge a whole bladder or leaks, which means that discharge some amount of the urine without really having any control over it. Uh, and then for that, also, I would like to put it there as a diagnosis or a definition is what's constipation, because we have always an argument on that. Really, if you look into the medical literature, constipation would mean that you have an abnormal bowel movement with different from the usual. And again, usual is the person usual. So not right, everybody right. going to have daily stools, but it's also not just the frequency, but the consistency, the effort with it, and other symptoms. And then that's how it's going to uh, lead into encoprasis, which is another important definition when we talk about it, that the patient also has stool discharge, either full defecation or partial defecation. So most of the children, right, by age of three years, would became potty trained for both, for bowel and for, bowel, uh, for bladder control. So therefore, uh, you're looking for a 2% of the children at age of four that they still would have enuresis or encoprasis. And really, that's the time after age of four when you start to focus on that. So before mm -hmm. that, yeah. patient, I would like to make sure that everybody understands that this is a normal pattern, right? First, you have a nocturnal bowel control, then a, a daytime bowel control, then a daytime bladder control, and after developing the nocturnal uh, bladder right. control. Right. So by age of five, I would say that, you know, 0.2% of the patients will still have inability to hold the urine. And then it's the second step what the uh, primary provider has to figure out, is it primary? Quote, did you ever have dry day? And it's even just one day if they had no enuresis during the daytime or during the nighttime. That's important. Or you have secondary, quote, you have achieved dryness and then something happened and now you have uh, daytime yeah. or nighttime uh, enuretic problem again. So when this uh, type of patient then presents and they're in that age group of four to five and the physician does, the primary care physician really believes that this is a true issue that needs to be worked up, what are the tools available 
uh, that they could use to evaluate and eventually make that diagnosis of enuresis? So I think uh, approaching all of this problem from a physiological and a psychological uh, point of view is very important. So don't just tell to the parents that, oh, this is normal, right? Because there's so much simple tool that you can use in the office that will really rule out 50%, I would always tell to the parents, the badness, right? Okay. So if we think about it, what makes the urine? That's your kidney. So 50% of the cases could be ruled out by you make too much urine. And that could be just because the concentration ability of the kidneys are decreased, and that's many, many uh, diseases, renal disorders, uh, dysplastic uh, uh, or abnormal mm-hmm. concentrations such as diabetes incipitus could present like that. So just with a simple urine dipstick from the first morning, if they could do that, but even if during the daytime, just confirming the, how much water that patient had before, and if right. the gravity right. is normal, then again, it's quite unlikely that you would have a patient who has renal dysplasia or have DI or or DM, diabetes mellitus or whatsoever. And then second step, really what I liked all of the patients to bring with them, and it's so simple, but sometimes, you know, people just don't think about it, have a parent to keep a anuresis diary. And that's what they would like, not just how many times they had bedwetting, but during the daytime, how many times their child used the restroom, how often they are voiding. Because again, that's important for making the diagnosis of voiding dysfunction, which we're going to talk about it after that. And then secondary, have the diary, including for your bowel movement, what's your constipation. So these are, I think, the uh, very simple, just uh, intake information including the history, when was the first time that they achieved bowel control? When was the first time that they achieved bladder control? Have they ever had a dry night? You know, those kind of yeah. simple questions that they actually do hand out to the patients in a waiting room, then have a urine when they come in just to measure gravity, and then review all of those information will really elucidate most of the problem. And then yeah. we can talk about it, who does need a blood work and who needs really a kidney ultrasound. Yeah, we can get to I, I, First, before we go there, let's, how important though, and, and maybe maybe this is the question I want to ask, if, if enuresis goes undiagnosed and it becomes a chronic issue, what's the consequences of that? And, and I guess the question also is how, important is, how important is early detection? I would say that as a quality of life, extremely important. And this data actually coming from our renal transplant patients follow-up quality of life information. So it's pretty reliable and it's a nationwide data. Those kids who never be able to achieve uh, dryness because of abnormal bladder or some other renal abnormality that could not be fixed with the kidney transplantation, the quality of life is really poor. So from that standpoint, really, you would like to make sure that that parent's concern is always addressed properly not just saying that, oh, it's okay, it's normal, it will go away. Rather, every year when you have an intake problem, make sure that you question all of those developmental milestones that will be achieved because, yes, many times if you don't diagnose a renal dysplasia on time, the patient going to have end-stage kidney failure that's ongoing, right? And that could be primary presenting symptoms as renal dysplasia. And why do I say it? Because in the last couple of years, probably I have three or four who really presented just primary enuresis. And then secondary, again, many times parents will tell me that they just don't listen to me. And so that's also the other thing that it may be normal, it may be psychological, it may be behavior, but if it's going untreated, it has a negative 
effect on the child and on the family too. Yeah, and that and that brings up, I think, an important point, right? That that uh, primary care providers need to be um, prepared, right, to to deal with not just the potential physical issues that are going on, but also the psychological issues. So how, how do you have any um, advice for primary care physicians who, who um, may need some help in dealing with the stress and the psychological issues associated with enuresis? Absolutely. So a couple of things, what I would say that the primary provider could do to, you know, stay always objective. I think that's what's really important is uh, every time when they do come in, use those uh, intake forms that we actually you can, uh, they can uh, download from our uh, website too or it's freely available from us when, with very uh, detailed questions go through including behavior, attention, including uh, weight problem, including uh, other uh, primary, maybe not related to chronic other illness that could cause uh, bad wedding, to use it, to utilize it. And then secondary, uh, always make sure that uh, pay attention to secondary uh, bad wedding, such as uh, frequently nowadays we see it, that children who develop obesity, one of the first symptoms is uh, a victimization from uh, peer pressure, we see that, mm-hmm. that they develop secondary enuresis. So you may not really think about to ask those questions, right? You kind of don't want to sometimes open up that uh, uh, box when you are seeing this patient. But if you have it ready for you, hand it out in the waiting room, parents just can go through, say yes or no, without really feeling impressed because a child may not, really a teenager may don't really want to talk about that, that, hey, I still have bad wedding, because it's something they don't really want to talk about it. But they most likely, the likelihood of they actually going to say it on the paper is much higher. That's also right. what study shows with yeah, it. Very good and then advice. lastly, there's really several new articles that have been recently published in a pediatric nephrology and also in the general pediatric uh, journal talking about the psychological and the behavior uh, uh, background of uh, bedwetting and, again, just reviewing what's normal, what's not abnormal, and when do you should refer the child for uh, evaluation. Well, I, I, I want to go there for the last question, Dr. Van Sickle. What, when should a primary care physician refer to a specialist like yourself? Excellent. So, number one, I would say that uh, we'd like to make sure that every physician understands that before they would like to go ahead and do treatment, and I know we, there is a question on that too, evaluate it, right? Not just give a medication, not just give a Band-Aid. In that time, if you see that child first morning during gravity is abnormally low, that child should have a laboratory evaluation. And sometimes it's easier to refer to us. We would be happy to do that with those patients. And sometimes there's a question, you know, should it go to endocrinology or nephrology? Don't worry about it. Just refer to us to nephrology. We'll uh, take care about the rest of it. And we'll uh, redirect the patient if they need to be seen by endocrinology. Secondary, if that patient is more than seven years old and still has primary bedwetting, which including, again, daytime and nighttime problem, not being able to address with all of that what we talk about it, that chat should be referred to us. And then thirdly, if somehow a blood work had been obtained and showing that the kidney function is abnormal, that should be a red flag, right? And then fourthly, if somehow they obtained a kidney ultrasound and it's showing that the kidney is abnormal 
or the bladders are abnormal, that patient also should be referred to us. Dr. Now, who should not be really referred to us? There's a couple of cases when I would like to make sure that everybody understands that if a child has primary anuresis but less than four years of age, even if that would be, you know, strictly need to get it done because of they need to go into daycare. But otherwise, everything else is normal. Gravity is normal. They really uh, have still daytime uh, bed wetting, daytime wetting, and nighttime wetting, too. Those patients are developmentally going through. We could really help the patients, and, you know, we are happy to talk to them, but they could really save time just by reviewing the simple parent handout that even the primary provider can provide to them. And then lastly, those patients who have severe developmental delay. You know, we are talking about patients who are just not able to comprehend that they function. I always said that you can train almost everybody to become potty trained. Uh, those are the patients that you may not going to really achieve a huge uh, success from visiting us other than we're going to reassure mom and said or dad and mm-hmm. said, you know, everything is normal, but this may not going to work because of that. It's, it, I would say that Work up everything. Make sure that the the psychologist, behavior and development physician is absolutely involved with that case. And if it's all of not helping, let them to see us. Because sometimes we do feel that we just didn't achieve as much as they promised to them because, you know, I cannot fix certain problems, right? As a nephrologist, we cannot mm-hmm. make them to have a bladder control if they are not able to have even a bowel control. Dr. Van Sickle, that was an Excellent interview. Wonderful information. And I want to thank you for the work that you're doing and also thank you for coming on the show today. You're listening to Pediatrics in Practice with Children's Mercy Kansas City. For more information, you go to childrensmercy.org. That's childrensmercy.org. I'm Dr. Mike Smith. Thanks for listening.